So we have, you and I have a Heavenly Father who is holy. He's absolutely unique, and he is pure in every aspect and every part of himself. Happy Father's Day to those of you who are fathers. Today, we are talking about the holiness of God because we're going to, in a few minutes, talk about sin. And I want you to know that the fact that it's Father's Day and we're talking about sin have absolutely nothing to do with one another. We're going to do a responsive reading about God's holiness, taken from a remarkable passage in which the prophet Isaiah sees God, and he is overwhelmed with God's uniqueness and his power and his glory and his absolute purity. So if you had a father, would you stand with me today? And I will read the uh, light print, and you will read the dark print. This is from Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, Holy, Holy. Except I suspect they may have been a tad more animated and probably more unified when they were saying it. So they began calling to one another. Very good. You sounded downright seraphimish. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook. And the temple was filled with smoke. And here's Isaiah's response. Pause for a second for dramatic effect, because when you started reading that, I thought, it, I thought you sounded happy. <laughs> and Isaiah might not have been happy. When he said this, there's this great passage, I've referred to it before in one of C.S. Lewis's books about, it's a children's book, and the two kids together, and Aslan, the character in the book, represents Jesus. And one of the kids sees Aslan for the first time, and he's like terrified. And he looks at the other child, and he says, is he safe? The child responds, no, he's not safe, but he's good. That's God's holiness. Woe is me. I'm undone. I mean, everybody I know is undone. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? remember that, at least thematically, that's going to reappear at the end of what we say today uh, in a few moments. You may be seated. I was looking today for a panel of expert fathers as a way of celebrating Father's Day. And uh, none of those guys could come, so... (laughs) I'm sorry, I had to do it. (laughs) Okay, so I have sent these guys, Dean... 
Uh, Dean Salami. Mark Abraham. Eric Knox. Ed Allen. <laughs> I've sent these guys a list of questions and just asked them to contemplate it. So we're going to hear what they have to say today. We're going to keep this under 10 minutes. You don't all have to answer every question. What's been your biggest challenge as a father? Then you have two girls. That would be it. <laughs> Mark, you have two girls and a son. Correct. <laughs> See why I picked these guys? And Eric, you have two girls. I didn't even realize this. So yeah, we got um, so six girls and a boy. What has been your biggest challenge as a father, any of you? Well, I would say for me, uh, probably wisdom to know when to speak and perhaps when to be silent, when not to, when I want to boldly give instructions and direction and when not to do that, when to sit back and uh, just be more silent. So that's the wisdom to know when to do that at this stage is probably area where I feel I need prayer. Okay. For me, the biggest challenge is to have your daughters do exactly what you've tried to ingrain in them from the time they were very young. And yeah, I have, I have very strong opinions about things, and I've encouraged them to develop their own opinions and to differ with me, but to be able to tell me why. And when you discover that they have a different opinion is a challenge. And when they can justify it and make you question your own, that's been a challenge. <laughs> okay. Uh, I think the greatest challenge for me is letting my girls do the things that are uniquely better. What's been the greatest reward? You've got to answer that one. I mean, watching the girls talk into their faith. I, I watch them and hear them as they um, talk to their peers about their faith, and it, it's pretty cool to hear how they do it. Uh, Amanda, I have successfully duplicated myself in female form with Amanda. So, um, which, which scares all of it, us. It is a scary. God help the guy who tries to marry her. I, uh, um, Amen. It's, it's interesting to see how she does it, which is very similar to me, and then see how Ali does it is altogether different. I agree with Dean. I think probably the the greatest reward for me was watching, not at the same time, but at completely different times, my daughters make a profession of faith and be baptized in the church. Mm. Those were very rewarding, you know, among a long list, but those were at the top. So I agree with both of you guys. That's <laughs> what I put down, too, is my, the greatest reward for me is to see my kids move into their own faith decisions and see the decisions that they make and uh, kind of make decisions to stand away from the rest of the crowd and do uh, things that uh, Christ would call them to do as well. Uh, give us, you guys, one of your fondest memories. I'll, I'll go on that one. Years ago, it was like before first grade or kindergarten or something, I went in and my expectation was that I would have a just one of those quality ooh uh, times with with Alicia, and 
And so I'm in there, and I'm trying to tell her how much I love her, and, and she's going to be fine, and she's going to learn, and this is a, you know, I wanted to have one of those times. And she's wiggling, she's climbing. At the time, we had a bed with a rail that she could hang from, and and I'm starting, you know, I went in there to have a quality time, <laughs> and she's, you know, jumping all over Would the you place. be still? I'm trying to love you. And, and that was kind of it. I'm like, Alicia, you know. I'm trying to have a serious conversation here. And she goes, Dad, but I can't help it. I was born to wiggle. (laughs) (laughs) So it ended up being great, great, which was true. But anyway, so that's a fond memory. Uh, So I was thinking fondest memory would be a time where we were doing something all together as a family. And I just, there's so many of them. But, I mean, I guess when they were, when my kids were younger, we used to, have specific family time around dinner time, talking about things that we were thankful for for years and years. We had calendars that we would write on that particular day what we were thankful for, and then we could look back in past years. And then I just remember some puppet shows that they used to do when they were younger. <laughs> we, I would be the announcer of the puppet show, and now for the puppet show we have, you know, Tommy or Jenna getting ready to do this, as, and they put on a, a puppet show. So that was that was pretty fun memories. We're going to have to tell Tommy and Jenna that we want to see one of those puppet shows. <laughs> right before Amanda was born, I did. I, I worked a lot. I worked 70, 80 hours plus. And after she was born, it really helped to change the landscape of how I approach work. And so one of the things that were really, was really cool was after I got home from work, we would play a little bit, and then for an hour, she'd sit in my lap, and all we'd do was watch about an hour's worth of cartoons. And I'd live for that. I mean, I got out of work. I stopped working 60, 70 hours a day. I, I just did what I needed to do to get home and hang out with Amanda. It's awesome. It's awesome. How have you guys tried to model Christ-like behavior? I mean, it, it, I, this is three questions, but I put it in one because it's similar. So how have you tried to disciple your children? How have you tried to exercise your spiritual influence in your home? And I'm looking, I mean, you can ask, answer generally, but I'm looking for practical ways to I think it's changed over the years but one of the constants is we've always tried to make sure that church was a priority Linda and I have prayed together openly in front of our kids we've tried to make sure that they understood that our relationship with Christ is is important and you know and as they've gotten older you know having them see us you know work in the church work in and helping people, you know, some of the things that we've done for people, certainly as they've gotten older, that we've let them know we, we're doing this, but, you know, it's not something we broadcast. It's just the right thing to do, we help. And so to try to let them understand the things that we do that are visible, the things that we do that are not so visible, and to um, include them in the process and the decision-making process. I think um, we have always had a, a habit of doing uh, family devotions once a week and allowing the girls to be included in it, letting them pray, letting them lead the devotions. Um, I think the biggest thing for them, for me, for them, was watching me as I interacted with friends, especially on, on all areas. You know, they, they once, once in a while they would comment, well, Dad, you talk about God in almost everything. So, like, not in everything, but, you know, with, with those things that are counting, that it's important for us to make sure that we always include God. And they would always hear my conversations with friends mm-hmm. and what we talk about. And for them, it was a really a good reminder that it wasn't just what we did on Saturday mornings, but it was something that was for everyday life. Uh, same kind of thoughts as uh, Eric and Dean, um, just in just, you know, 
my patterns, wanting to let them know about the quiet times that I have in the morning, kind of making sure that they see that that's important in my life, uh, trying to be consistent in our prayers, trying to uh, make sure that they can see Julie and, and myself praying a lot together, at, you know, as Eric said, trying to get involved in doing different service types of things, bringing them alongside in, in those types of things. So it's just, I just kind of thought, you know, the day-to-day things that we do as Christ followers and have them be a, a witness to that. Several years ago, I witnessed a panel kind of like this when I was in seminary. I was a young man. Diane and I were fairly newly married. We didn't have kids yet. And a moderator was asking, I can't remember, two or three or four seminary professors questions like this, and asked them this next question. And you know, all of us are in the audience kind of hanging on every word from our professors and holy men. And the moderator says, what advice would you give to young dads? And the first guy up was, Roger Nicole, who's no longer living, was a rich theological mind. He was educated in Europe, and he was French and spoke like those Europeans, nine languages. And at the time, Dr. Nicole was like 80-something. And we're all, oh, tell us, Dr. Nicole. And he poignantly turned to the audience, and he said, always bring wipes. So, <laughs> uh, guys, what piece of advice would you give to young dads? Something that um, I didn't necessarily do a good job of, but I think it would be a good idea for a young dad is to uh, align themselves with a good Christian dad mentor. I think that God's word calls us to do that. Uh, Align yourself with a, a Christian guy who's been there, who has older kids, that uh, can give you advice and suggestions and and ideas on the things that they went through, the struggles that they had. And certainly as a young Christian dad, just align yourselves with other, you know, other guys that are, can keep you accountable for your relationship with your children and the things that you do. And the third thing I could think of is just simply as you know, we talked about before, just, just there, your time with your kids, your commitment with your kids, and just uh, modeling Christ with them. But I thought the mentor idea kind of popped into my mind. That's a great suggestion, Mark. It's also really difficult, honestly. It is, yeah. That's why I never did a good job. <laughs> <laughs> Dean, Eric? One of the things I realized early was uh, it was okay to make mistakes, as you pray and ask the Lord for wisdom, be okay with your mistakes and just move on. Admit your mistakes to your kids especially. That's big. And uh, it, it always works out. How do you make mistakes? Uh, how don't I make mistakes? <laughs> um, I mean, I know with uh, Amanda, her and I's relationship has always been characterized by fun and, and fun, having fun and stuff like that. I just remember one time when she did something and I was hard on her. I, was, I mean, I just really came down hard on her. And I realized it immediately. And I stopped everything. I went down to her level and said, hey, baby, I, that was wrong. Dad was too tough. And her response was, okay, Dad, can we just play? So she just wanted to get back to where we were. And, you know, she took the, the mistake I made and how, even how, as hard as it was, it, it didn't even make a difference to her. She just wanted to get back to what we always did was play and mm-hmm. hang out. So. I, I agree with that. You're going to make mistakes. But I think as a father, 
as, as the spiritual head of the household, that's a huge responsibility. But I think that as my advice would be recognize that and own it. Understand that you're going to make mistakes. There are going to be many times that you don't get it right. I look back on my life and I'm like, you know, gosh, what do I regret as a father doing? And, you know, I think it's always times when I didn't respond to something in that godly manner, in the way that the spiritual head of a household should. And you wish you could go back and unlose your temper or take some words back that you said that were hard. You're going to do that. But I think the, the, my advice is to own the role that you play as a Christian father and constantly strive for continuous improvement in that role. And when you do make mistakes, own that too and go to the party that you offended or that you didn't react in a godly, Christ-like manner and say, you know, hey, I want you to understand that I recognize I didn't react properly. I didn't respond in a way that honors Christ. And that's not something that I've achieved 100%, but it's something that I constantly aspire to achieve. And I don't know that I'll ever get it 100% correct 100% of the time. But over time, with that as a goal, I've gotten a little better at it. Eric, I think that's big, too. I, I know just in my conversations with people, with myself, as I observe folks over the years, maybe it feels like it's an especially big problem for men because I am a man. Maybe it's all of us. But it seems to me like a lot of times in families, one of the presenting problems is dad has just abdicated in whatever area it is. So I think that's a big one. Let me add one more. What have y'all learned about God from being a dad? Lots of grace. My dad was a Muslim, and he was harsh. He made his displeasure known. And I am his son. I, couldn't, I was cooked in that, I was baked in that soup, whatever, however the expression goes. And I realized that with my temper, I had to be very, very mindful of the things that I do. And as I began to grow in my faith, and as my time as a father, uh, in my time as a father, I realized how much love God has for us. Mm. Um, and that started to break up a lot of that hard ground that I, was, I, was, I grew up in. And um, I can't even imagine the love that God has for us. When I look at the love that I have for my girls, a love that I never really began to even know existed growing up. Mm. So. Mm. Right. So it's same kind of answer for me, love. <laughs> is uh, just what comes to mind, uh, just uh, the power of God's love and to know, you know, how, and uh, I mean, how can he love my family? How can he love my kids any more than I could possibly? And he even loves me even more than that. So it's just his overall love is just more powerful to me just because of the relationships and the love that I have for my family. So that's, that's you know, how I thought about the answer to that question when I, yeah and my answer is not much different I think it's context you know looking at my two daughters and there are times when they disappoint you they anger you you're like what were you thinking we're that way with God and at the end of the day you still love them no matter what they do you still love them and that's you know the context of when I look at you know, God is my father no matter what I do, doesn't mean that anything I want to do is okay. He's going to love me at the end of the day. 
but he's going to love me at the end of the day. <laughs> Peace of the Lord be with you. So Genesis 3, 1 through 10. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any garden in the tree? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. This is a critically important profound passage of scripture that comes from one of the most important sections of scripture in the whole Bible, Genesis 3 and 4. And I want to thank this morning a couple of resources that have helped me understand it. One is I'd recommend a very good commentary, and you don't have to know Hebrew to do work in this commentary. It's by a guy named Derek Kidner, and it's in the Tyndale Old Testament commentary series, a commentary on Genesis, really good resource. And the other was a, an examination of this section of Scripture by Pastor Tim Keller, who's pastor of uh, Redeemer Presbyterian in New York. Just awesome observations. And uh, I want to thank the two of them. So what went wrong with our world? How do we understand and respond to the chaos and the violence we see all around us? How do we understand the confusion and the pain, the loneliness, the angst we experience, pain and angst that we somehow feel shouldn't be there, or at the very least we long for it not to be there, even at the deepest levels of who we are? How do we understand the violence we do to one another? How do we make sense of the violence we do to our own conscience? Not doing the thing we want to do and doing the thing we don't want to do. So many times, what went wrong with our world? Listen. Literally everything depends on how we answer these questions. Honestly, we don't really notice, but everyday practical choices and decisions flow directly from how we think about and how we answer those questions. Beatrice Webb was born in the late 1900s, and she was one of the architects of the British welfare system. She was an active socialist, and she and her husband formed the London School of Economics. In 1925, toward the end of her life, she is reflecting back on some of her own worldview, and she was reading a diary that she had been keeping in 1890, and she says this, In my 1890 diary, I wrote, I have staked all on the essential goodness of human nature. But now, 35 years later, I have realized how permanent are the evil impulses and instincts in us and how little they seem to change, like greed for wealth and power, and how mere social machinery will never change that. We must ask better things from human nature, but will we get a response? No amount of science or knowledge has been of any avail, and unless we curb the bad impulse, how will we get better 
social institution. So Beatrice Webb, toward the end of her life, she's recognizing that science, that social engineering, that political solutions have not made any difference in essentially who we are as human beings and the evil that we do one to another, business to business, nation to nation. Webb staked everything on the notion that people are basically good and that they just need the right education and the right social engineering, and and we'd end up creating better human beings. But she found that her belief system had utterly failed. Now, the irreligious and the atheists answer these questions in a certain way. And that answer informs how they do their life. Pantheists who follow New Ageism or Hinduism, they answer these questions in an entirely different way. And that informs how they do life. So next week, we're going to talk about that. And we're going to talk frankly about some of the differences, some of the distinctions between them. But today, today I want us to focus in and get a handle on the beginning of the Bible's story. Because Genesis 3 and 4 gives us the answer to these questions. Listen, honestly, honestly, I believe this is God's account of things. And I believe that Understanding this is at the foundation of literally everything. So I can't build an epic enough introduction to what Anu read for us this morning. Everything depends on us getting this right. So we're going today to talk about our descent into sin. I'm going to suspend really giving a big picture definition of sin until toward the end. But today we're going to talk about our descent into sin. And as we do so, I want you to notice six things. I want you to notice the attitude, the stretch, the lie, the consideration, the desire, and the act. I want you to notice the attitude, the stretch, the lie, the consideration, the desire, and the act. Let's pray before we get started. Father, you are holy, and we can't imagine that. And we are not. This we can imagine. And I'm profoundly moved this morning by Dean and Mark and Eric's observation about the depth of your love and your grace. We are lost without it. Lord, I pray that this wouldn't be an exercise in moving gray matter around, but that you would break open our chests and massage this truth into our hearts and speak to us in a way that we walk away with the therefore for each of us from you. We give you permission right now to give us the therefore, to apply this to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so in this passage, the serpent is described as the word Anu read for us is crafty. It's often translated shrewd. In Proverbs 12 and 13, the same word is used as a virtue that the wise should actually pursue. But then in several instances throughout Scripture, the same word is misused, in which case it becomes guile or wiliness. 
you should know there's a play on words here in this text in the Hebrew that we don't get in English. The Hebrew word for shrewd has a very similar structure to the word we translate nude or naked. In fact, they're different only by one letter and they sound very similar to one another. So the text really is provocatively reminding us that while Adam and Eve wanted to end up shrewd, they actually ended up nude instead. So here's how it starts. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Did he? Did he really? This isn't doubt. This is ridicule. This is mockery. This is standing at a distance with a furrowed brow and a considered look. And Really? How, how, how could he be so... Really? One commentator called Satan's comments epic cynicism. I like... Pastor Keller's description, he called this a sneer. You see, sin starts not in action, but in attitude. In fact, when Keller's talking about this specific exchange, he says this profound little thing. We lose God, not through argument, but through atmosphere. That's almost always true. It's not always true. Some of you and some of us have let faith slip because of just doubt. Just we can't get our minds around the logic of the story. But almost always, we lose God because of atmosphere. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had. I was thinking about this, Dean, when you were talking about how you handle and how Amanda handles. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with people over the years about God that ultimately got down to atmosphere, attitude. As a part of his analysis, Keller pulls out this novel, and he reads from this novel. It's fascinating. It's a, it's a novel of two Christians who went away to college. They were Christian young people. They went away to college, and they lost their faith. And then later in life, in their 30s, one of them recaptured their faith, and they run into one another, they get back together. They have this dialogue with one another, and this is comment ensues from this novel. Let's be frank. We found ourselves in contact with a certain current of ideas and we plunged into it because it seemed modern and successful. At college, we started automatically writing the kinds of papers that got good marks, saying the kinds of things that got applause. We were afraid of the label fundamentalism, afraid of a breach with the spirit of the age. We were afraid of ridicule. And having allowed ourselves to drift, accepting every half-conscious solicitation from our desires, we reached the point where we believed our doubts. In the same way a drunken man believes another glass will do him no harm. This is the start of sin for us. The insidious sneer which sees the activity and the demands of God as ridiculous or irrelevant or unsophisticated or pointless. And the seed of the attitude, the seed of the attitude, usually flowers into the stretch. The stretch is most recognizable, I think, in our everyday relationships with one another. More so than it is in our relationship with God. But God is a relationship, so the stretch certainly happens with Him as well. It does here with Eve. We see the stretch every day. Okay, Diane, I'll go, but I'm not waiting two hours again. I'll tell you that. After 20 minutes, I'm leaving. 
Of course, I waited 35 minutes before, which is a long time, but two hours sounds so much more unacceptable and ridiculous. Ed, you never put those away. But, but somebody has to put them away. Who do you think does it? Well, actually, never is a really long time and not accurate. But it sounds so much more convincing. And it makes me sound so much more ridiculous than saying something like, you usually don't put this away. Can you help? The stretch. The woman said to the serpent, Huh? Well, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you'll die. God never said anything about touching the fruit. But the stretch reveals the first crack in Eve's spiritual autoimmune system. She's beginning to accept, and she's beginning to own the ridicule for herself. Why did God set up this prohibition? Let's take a break for a second. This is a little parenthesis. Over the years, you may have thought this yourself, over the years it's been observed that this story has some conspicuous holes in it. Where did Satan come from? How did he manifest as a snake? <laughs> and why? Often when those questions are asked, I think the questioners overlook the obvious. I want you to hear the obvious this morning. This narrative doesn't even attempt to answer those questions. Here's why. I think, you know, there are certain kinds of obvious holes that sometimes appear in works of fantasy. You've seen this before. Usually they come in the form of solutions that then make the rest of the story ridiculous. You know what I mean? Like uh, there was the Superman came out this past week and I was reminded of the Superman series, I think started back in the 70s with Christopher Reeves. And if you remember Superman 4, one of the worst movies ever made, Superman, Lois Lane dies. Do you remember what happens? Superman flies into space, flies around the earth at supersonic speed backwards so that he turns the earth backwards and he turns back time so that he can go back and save Lois Lane. Here's the problem with offering a solution like that. At the end you go, well, why didn't he just do that every time something bad happens? Well, notice in this narrative, that never happens. The narrative doesn't offer a ridiculous explanation. It offers none at all. Because this story is not about the serpent. This story is about us. This story is for us. And Moses knew that when he wrote it. This is about what's fundamentally wrong at the heart of my heart and our whole world. It, it was always meant for that. This is our introduction to God's answer to what's wrong with our world, and it began with a simple attitude adjustment, which led to the stretch. After the attitude of heart comes the lie of the mind. The lie. You'll surely not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. This is important. I want you to notice that Satan doesn't question God's existence. He doesn't question God's holiness. He doesn't even question the fact of God's command. He questions God's goodness. 
He knows what's critical to go after in the heart of Eve and Adam. He questions God's goodness. Did he really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? Would you surely not die? For God knows that you'll be like him. This is the essence of sin. Wait a minute. I can do better without God. I can't trust him after all. He may not fully provide for me. He may not ultimately come through. He questions God's goodness. we got more to say about this next week, but let me give you a teaser. And let's acknowledge honestly that Satan's lie is a partial truth. They didn't die right away. They ultimately did, but they didn't die right away. And they were able to see things in a new way that they had not seen before. But it was a knowledge that did not enhance them. It diminished them. And they died instantly to their intimacy with one another and to their connection with God. After the lie, the next step is critical. You heard the old saying, you can't keep a bird from flying over your head, but you can keep it from building a nest in your hair. So the bird flies over Eve's head. In other words, the lie presents itself. The fruit of this tree will not be a bad thing for me. In fact, it could be a remarkably good thing. In fact, it could be just what I've needed. Okay, pause. Because we need to cut ourselves a little bit of a break here. Some, sometimes the presentation of the lie is inevitable. Sometimes it may simply be a product of fatigue or extreme stress or any of a thousand different circumstantial reasons. I better just leave. I'm no good anyway. The lie whispers from within. No one likes me. The lie whispers. They're trying to take what I should have. The lie whispers. I never get anything right, the lie whispers. I should have never started this. I better not say a word because I'm just not smart enough, the lie whispers. The lie can present itself for any number of reasons, but the lie must not be considered. It must not be mulled over. It must not be entertained. This must not be dwelled on. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye. I was talking about this earlier this week with Diane, telling her some of what I was realizing from this text. And I was at this point, and I read this to her, and Diane said, wow, I never noticed that before. I said, what? And she said, the woman saw the fruit. It's as if she'd never seen it before. She had never taken the time to Consider the lie. You see, the lie is given a serious foothold. It is considered here by Eve. Okay, I know I'm not supposed to nurture anger, but it just it feels so right. And after all, what they did to me. And so it's nurtured. I know I shouldn't brag about myself now, but I feel like I need to, you know, they won't know and they won't get it. And they might not respect me enough. It's nurtured. I know I shouldn't have sex outside of marriage, but this relationship was so close and the sink and the and it's and I feel like and I, it's nurtured. I know I'm not supposed to seek revenge, but they may not ever fully understand what they've done to me. And it's nurtured. Once consideration is allowed, 
desire is inevitable. And the descent into sin is virtually unstoppable. So the desire. Closely related to the consideration, of course, is the desire. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom. The attitude lays the foundation for the stretch which welcomes the lie. The lie in turn sets up the consideration which gives birth to desire, and desire finds its satisfaction in the act. She saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, so she took some and ate it. What is the big deal with eating a piece of fruit from a tree? (laughs) I mean, we've got lots of things from God that make a lot of sense. Don't murder your children. This makes sense. Don't steal. This makes sense. But don't eat fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden. Why not give them a reason? God, why not explain yourself? Tell them what's up with the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden. You know why I think? I think God doesn't give them an explanation because it would be cost-benefit analysis and not obedience. So, God comes to Adam and Eve, don't eat fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden. What's up with that, God? Well, look, if you eat that fruit, literally, all hell is going to break loose. Here's what's going to happen with the rest of human history. The universe is going to be at odds with itself. You guys are going to you know, I mean, you'll see some new things, but it's going to be horrible. And here's how it's going to feel. I'm just real quick, I'm going to give you a peek at it, and then I'm going to take it away from you. Boom. Wow. Do not want that. Okay. We'll not eat the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden because that's not what we want. That's not good for us. And what we've got now is cost-benefit analysis and not obedience. So what's sin? I like Professor R.C. Sproul's explanation of sin. It's not really a definition. He defines it in many different ways in many different places. But in one point, Sproul says this, Sin is cosmic treason. Sin is treason against a perfectly pure sovereign. It is an act of supreme gratitude toward the one to whom we owe everything, to the one who has given us life itself. Have you ever considered the deeper implications of the slightest sin of the most minute picadillo? What are we saying to our Creator when we disobey Him? At the slightest point, we are saying no to the righteousness of God. We are saying, God, your law is not good. My judgment is better than yours. Your authority does not apply to me. I am above and beyond your jurisdiction. I have the right to do what I want to do, not what you command me to do. It's putting myself in the place of God. And this is our problem. This is our problem. We soft-sell it. But we are putting ourselves in the place of God. This is, of course, what I do when I murder someone. I say, I'm going to exercise ultimate authority over this person's life, which comes as a gift from God, but I'm going to insert myself into that equation. I'm going to take that life. It's easy to see. I'm putting myself there in the place of God. But what about anxiety? What about worry? When I worry, 
I don't trust God. When I worry, I'm putting myself in the place of God. When I worry, I'm saying it depends on me. I've got to keep it on my shoulders. Because I can't trust Him. It's cosmic treason. We put ourselves in the place of God. And as an aside, let's remember this. Let's not kid ourselves. Our descent into cosmic treason is not sudden. It doesn't just happen. And it does not, in the end, come as a surprise. It's an ancient, well-worn path. Our descent begins with an attitude change. We own the change and stretch the truth. This stretching is bolstered by sophisticated, often familiar lies which we choose to believe. Our descent passes through consideration into desire and finds its satisfaction in treasonous action. So what's the result? Well, we're going to talk about this more next week, but in short, the result is they cover themselves against one another and they hide from God. I have this weird Star Trek notion. Some of you have heard me say this before. This is my own personal theory, but it's just my way of understanding this and putting feet to it. I have this notion that the way the planet was originally designed, and let's go beyond that, I think the way the universe was originally designed, human beings were designed to live in more than four dimensions. You know, physicists today talk about the four dimensions, our three-dimensional space and then time as a fourth dimension. I have this weird notion that we were designed to live in a universe where we experience the dimension of spirit with every bit as much reality as you and I today experience the three dimensions of space and the fourth dimension of time. So they experienced God in a way that was profoundly up close and real and irrefutable. And that experience has been forever cut off from you and I. So how does God respond? In the face of cosmic treason, how does God respond? If you miss everything else, don't miss this. God goes looking for them. God comes walking in the garden in the cool of the day, which commentators suggest is the author's way of saying God was trying to normalize and be his normal self with them. And that in itself is an act and an attempt at restoration. Where are you, Adam and Eve? And he knows exactly where they are. But he goes looking for them. Because it's our nature to hide. And it's God's nature to seek. Listen, if we ever find God, it's because God found us. And that's what He's still doing today. Today, He's still seeking you. I've seen it in many of your stories. Some of you know I've told you. I've told some of you in in private conversations, God is all over your life. He's after you. He's seeking you. He's still in that business today, going out, strolling the cool of the day, looking for people who are hiding. And He knows they're hiding and knows where they are and He's calling them out. And listen, that's what God has done supremely in Jesus He came looking. So what does He want from us? Well, number one, He wants surrender. 
He wants us to let go of our worry and our angst. Let go. Surrender to Him. Secondly, He wants recognition. When He comes after you, stop. Listen. Get it. This is why the followers of Jesus began to sense that Jesus was such a big deal. This is God coming after us. And third, He wants trust. Don't lean into yourself. Let go of your striving. Even when it doesn't make sense to you, trust. Even when it doesn't make sense to you, trust. Because when we demand that it makes sense to us, then we're again putting ourselves in the place of God. Northern Virginians, we're good at this. You know, we don't mind. In fact, we profoundly appreciate appropriate religion. But it needs to make sense to us, and it needs to be an add-on to our, to our lives. We need to be in the place of God, and we just need it to help us lead better lives. Have what we have, just better and more. So let's add religion. But that's not a deal that God is willing to make. I don't know if you've ever heard of William Borden. William Borden was born into the Borden dairy family. And some of you know Borden dairy products, cream and milk. The Borden family was, made their money in the middle of the 1800s. And they were spectacularly wealthy. They lived in Chicago. William Borden was born in 1887. And his mother became a Christian when Borden was early teens, like 14 or 15. And she began bringing him to the, I forget what it was called, like the Chicago Tabernacle, but it would become, in the 1900s, the Moody Bible Institute. So they started going, and at 15 or 16, William Borden had a profound experience with Christ that changed him. It forever marked him. He would be in a service and feel as if God was speaking to him. And he felt his bones rattle, and he had to respond. And so over time, he did so more and more, giving more of himself over to the more that he understood of God. He went to Yale and did very, very well at Yale. And then he decided he wanted to go to seminary. So he went to Princeton Seminary in New Jersey in the first decade of the 1900s. Finished Princeton Seminary and felt called of God to go on the mission field. His father, friends, relatives, they all thought this was ridiculous. It was a ridiculous way to expend his station in life, the income, the the family, the influence, who he was. You can do so much more if you just stay here and work the life that, that we're living. Think of all the good you can do. Think of all the charities. Friends, family, but especially his father. His father told him if he goes onto the mission field that he will never work in the family business as long as the father's alive. He goes to the mission field, and he goes to Cairo to language school. And during his first months in Cairo, he contracted cerebral meningitis and died. Before going to the mission field, right before leaving for the mission field, he gave all of his money away. At the time, a little over a million dollars, which in 1912 was a lot of money. Someone found his Bible next to his dead body, brought it back to America, gave it to his parents. His parents read through his Bible, and they found 
lots of little notes, but three found quotes dated shortly after giving all his money away in a passage where Jesus says, give all and follow me. William Borden had written, no reserve. Then in another passage, right next to another passage, dated right after his father said he could not work in the company. He wrote, no retreat. And on his deathbed, next to a passage dated two days before he died, William Borden wrote, no regret. You know what I think I would have written? Really? Seriously? All of the, the education, the preparation, the influence I gave up, the money... Seriously? Do you hear the attitude? The beginning of the descent into sin? But Borden, he didn't say yes to God because of the success that would follow. He didn't say yes to God because of the influence that would follow. He didn't say yes to God because of the work he would do. He said yes to God. Period. No reserve. No regret. No retreat. No attitude. Listen, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God has spoken to many of you. I know He has. I know that you have later doubted it or dismissed it, or in the process of things getting really difficult, you have said, really? Seriously? And you have retreated, or you have regretted, or you've reserved a part of yourself, a part of your life, a part of your heart, You've taken it back. Well, this morning, look, this is our opportunity to step in. No reserve. But surrender. No retreat. Recognition. You've come after me. I say yes. And no regret. Trust. Stand with me and let's pray. God, it's Father's Day. We thank you for being our Heavenly Father. We thank you so much that when we have tried to hide, you've sought us out. You've come. Lord, I don't know where, of course, I don't know where each of us are this morning. I barely know where I am, but I know there are aspects of my life where I am descending. I'm considering or... I'm flush with desire, or I'm listening to lies, or I'm acting against your will, against your design, against what's best for me. Father, I ask in Jesus' name that you'd forgive us, that you'd have mercy. And I pray, Lord, I pray that you'd strengthen us 
and help us to say yes when you come. That we recognize. Lord Jesus, if there is anyone here this morning who has not said yes to you, a real yes, a resounding yes, they have flirted with you, they've thought about you, but they've never, they haven't said yes. I pray that today you would speak and you'd help them, heart and mind, step over, step in. We honor you, Lord, with all that we are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.